Everyone, I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. Hurricane Ian is charging toward Florida's west coast. And look, it's already felt on the tip of Florida right now. I mean, the Keys are beginning to experience the effects of this monster storm with tropical storm winds literally whipping through speeds of 40, even 50 miles an hour. The center of Ian will pass west of the Florida Keys later tonight as it barrels toward the Gulf Coast. And it might strike hard there tomorrow. In fact, it's expected to do just that. And not only is this life-threatening Category 3 hurricane getting even stronger, packing winds of 120 miles an hour, it's also getting larger in its size. Ian's wind field is expanding, which could potentially expose more of Florida to destruction. The storm's exact landfall tomorrow does remain uncertain, but it could be somewhere between Tampa and Fort Myers. Now, one of the greatest threats is the storm surge, and it could reach up to even 12 feet in some areas, which could bring, as you can imagine, pretty catastrophic flooding. Floridians are being urged by officials not to underestimate this storm. I mean, nearly 2 million people are already under mandatory evacuation orders all across Florida, and more are at least urged to leave. Police in Tampa are now going door to door, warning people they got to get out. 5,000 National Guard members are now even activated in Florida, and another 2,000 Guard troops are heard from other states to help them out. We're about to hear more from the mayor of Sarasota, one of the cities facing a possible direct hit from Hurricane Ian. We're going to also take you live to Tampa, where CNN's Ryan Young is standing by. But first, let's check in now with Tom Sater in the CNN Weather Center. Tom, what is the latest now? Well, the current location, Laura, in the 9 p.m. advisory places the center 180 miles south-southwest of Punta Gorda. Now, it's moving north-northeast at 10. It's been moving at 10 miles per hour all day long. In fact, it was moving about 12 before it hit western Cuba, which, by the way, tremendous flooding power is out in Havana. As we get in closer, though, and we're going to talk a little bit more in detail later, Laura, in the broadcast, but just to give you some of the basics, notice how the eye is collapsing here. In the 5 p.m. hour, we notice that when this happens, it's undergoing some restructuring, reorganizing. In fact, you can see it better on radar. It's called an eye wall replacement cycle. And what that means is the heaviest convection near the center is spreading out. Once it spreads out and it gets better organized, it collapses again and gets stronger. But not only does it get stronger, it pushes those winds outward. As you mentioned just moments ago, it is getting bigger. I mean, hurricane force winds are about 80-mile-wide swath, tropical storm 300, and that will grow in size. That's going to affect more citizens and residents of all of Florida. Other problems we're having right now, these feeder bands have been moving in and producing numerous tornadoes with damage in Broward County, down trees, uh, even north of Miami. We had some plane damage as well. And again, we had one just north of Naples. So we've got a tornado watch that is in effect for a very large area. But what's significant about this, it's in effect until 5 a.m. in the morning. I mean, really, that is staggering. Now, These tornadoes are not like the ones we see in the southern plains. They're not monsters. They're spin-ups, maybe EF-1s or 2s, but they're hard to detect when they occur. Flood watch for the entire peninsula, but these bright green, those are flooding uh, areas on rivers. This is the Peace River. For the last two weeks, Laura, they have had more than double their average rainfall, and in many locations, river gauges on the Peace River are already at flood stage. 
That's the last thing you want when you're going to have water get shoved up in the Charlotte Harbor that runs into the Peace River. Actually, the Peace River runs into that, but it's going to back it up. We're going to have numerous uh, problems on area rivers. Now we've got our Category 4. Might be a strong Category 3 at landfall because of this restructuring. But again, don't pay attention to the number. It's going to affect someone. But the biggest difference is notice the span in our track. It has been trending to the south and to the east in almost every track advisory we have received. Now, if there is going to be a movement again, it might be just slight, but it's going to be south again. I think there's a low, low possibility of it moving back to the west. But what that track change means, instead of a 5 to 10 foot surge in Tampa Bay, which yesterday had the forecast, uh, the system E installing, and for 36, 48 hours just tossing and shoving that surge into the bay and every tributary, they're now looking at that center to the south. So as it circulates counterclockwise in the bay, they're going to see that water recede and move out into the gulf. Mm. However, two points to the south, it's worse. And now we're seeing from Sarasota down toward Bonita Springs the increase in the surge. And that has big-time problems for areas of Venice. It's Port Charlotte. It's down to Coral Gables. And now these inundation areas are getting much, much worse. So unfortunately, when you see a shift like this, it's a sigh of relief for one community, but it's a vision of heartbreak for another. And we'll get more into the detail, the dynamics yeah. of what's happening, of course, in a little bit later. Wow, Tom. I mean, a tornado in one area, hurricanes, st- storm surge. It's unbelievable. Think about it. You think about going inland, there seems to be no real place to have refuge. Keep us posted. Right. We'll sure. keep checking back with you again, Tom Sater. Thank you so much. And tonight, I also want to turn to Tampa, where the mayor says they face a devastating amount of water. And it's easy to see why after what Tom has just articulated here tonight. Our own Ryan Young is there. Ryan, I mean, you rode along with officers from the Tampa Police Department today. They were going door to door in a mandatory evacuation zone. And I'm wondering, were the residents complying there? And and what is it like on the ground as you're seeing the concern raise the attention on Florida? Man, that's such a great question. There are so many people who've moved here from other places, especially during COVID. They've never been through a hurricane before, and now they have this facing right in their face. And you start talking about storm surge. It's words that people have never heard before. As we saw those officers going door to door and they were talking to people, some folks were saying, look, we plan to leave later on this afternoon. Others said they had nowhere else to go and they did not want to go to shelters. They did not want to leave their animals behind. And you can understand that. One thing that Tom talked about that a lot of people here have been saying over and over, the echo, is the fact that the ground here is already saturated with water. So they're concerned about any sort of storm surge and the water rising. Because on a heavy rain, you might see uh, flooding in certain parts of the Tampa area. In fact, right behind me is one of the trauma centers here, one of the hospitals. And if you look back that direction, Laura, you can see those barricades. That's actually an aqua fence. They've set that up to stop the water from being able to get into the hospital because they deal with it so much on this side of the island. We've talked to people who say they desperately want to get out of this situation, but at the same time, they don't want to leave home. We talked to one man who said, look, you better listen and you better listen fast because it's not worth gambling with your life. Take a listen. I'm not a very good gambler, and it's a bit of a gamble if you don't take it seriously. Yeah, so you can understand the sandbag operations here stopped at 2 o'clock. Laura, we've been out there for several days now watching this. People getting in line for two and three hours to get sand and leave with 10 bags, and that's all they get. Neighbors have also been sharing their sand with each other because they want to barricade their doors not to let water in. 
And as you know already from other situations, you don't want to be driving in water. And that's one of the big concerns. The mayor, the police chief, the fire chief all made that very clear today. Please don't drive in water because obviously even three feet of water can take your car away. It's pretty unbelievable, Ryan, to think about the lines. Please be safe down there and hearing about what everyone's going through. And again, not everyone having a place to go, particularly not wanting to go to the shelters in, in, in the area. I want to go to Sarasota County now where more than 150,000 people, 150,000 people, think about that. They're under mandatory evacuation orders. Just two hours ago, water to the barrier islands of the city of Sarasota was turned off to protect the distribution system and resources as the area is bracing for what will be, they believe, widespread flooding. Joining me now is the mayor of Sarasota, Eric Arroyo. Mayor, thank you for joining us this evening. You know, this wasn't supposed to happen to your city, but Florida was obviously already under a watch. You have no water in the city. It's been preemptively been shut off, but the bridges to the Barrier Islands have also now been closed. I'm wondering, Mayor, how are you feeling about all the preparations thus far? Will it be enough? You know, our main priority at the city of Sarasota is the safety of our residents. We called the local state of emergency and we activated what we like to call emergency operations center. Uh, meaning we have all the staff necessary for any type of disaster on call. We evacuated Zone A, which is the barrier islands and people living on boats and, and mobile mobile homes. And we started closely monitoring the situation last week. Uh, we received full briefings three times a day. Our utilities department has made sure that our generators are up and running and ready to go. Public Works began clearing out storm drains last week, and we have fortified many of our city buildings. Our fuel farms are in operation, ready to go. Florida Power and Light has been has been staged here in town uh, just since yesterday. Thousands of people. Uh, we have. Uh, I mean, we're ready to redirect traffic, and and most of the residents are heeding the the warning that it's 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 unsafe to be in the barrier islands. Uh, to me, you know, I love this city. I went to high school here and and it is, it, it's truly just amazing. It's t- it's catastrophic. It's terrible what, it, what has occurred and, and, and the fact that we are in this position, but it is truly humbling and amazing seeing the, ama- the great community we have because yeah. it doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat, in these times, everybody, neighbors are coming over, talking to other neighbors and trying to take care of them. And, and we're all in this together. Like there, there is that understanding here, which is pretty humbling. And Florida is not alone. I mean, the whole nation's watching to see what's going to happen and hoping the best for your community and all across Florida as well. I do wonder, you said most people are heeding the warnings to leave. We do know that everyone has the means to leave an area. Sometimes you don't have the any place to go. Maybe there's the financial means. Maybe there's the idea of pets at home. Or maybe you have somebody who was unable to be transported easily. How concerned are you about those who have chosen to ride out the storm? Has there been any thought given to those who will predictably stay, maybe justifiably, and need help? There is no excuse for, for, uh, for that here in Sarasota. We, we are a giving community. We have so many resources. We have a transportation hub that will literally pick you up and take you to one of our 12 shelters that we have locally. Uh, you can go on floridadisaster.org. You can look up all the shelters. You can look up a checklist of things you need that you can get at the grocery store to be prepared for this. We have a sandbag distributions happening all over uh, the, the, the county. 
And and on top of that, I mean, we we I mean, we are constantly reaching out to to residents. We are uh, sending phone calls. We're sending the uh, phone notifications. We are on social media. Uh, of course, the the news outlets like yourself, mm-hmm. and we have the resources. If anyone truly is vulnerable and they need the help, we are here for them. Really important to get that message out because we see time and time again, and we will cover you know hurricanes and any natural disasters and the forthcoming issues. We always want the message to come out, Mayor, that there is help, that there are resources, and people to actually get that message and the word out. Thank you so much for your time this evening. We're thinking about you as we continue to watch what happens with Hurricane Ian. Thank you. Thank you. Our coverage of Hurricane Ian continues in just a bit. There's also a new big trial underway. In fact, the highest profile trial yet in connection with the January 6th attack. The leader of the Oath Keepers and others are facing seditious conspiracy charges. Will we learn more about the planning for the insurrection? Next. Well, it's jury selection time and one of the highest profile trials yet to come from the January 6th Capitol attack. And it's underway as, well, the day has gone on. Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes and four of his top lieutenants are facing a number of charges, the most serious being seditious conspiracy for allegedly planning to stop Joe Biden from becoming president through violence. It'll be the first time in over a decade the DOJ has prosecuted Americans for sedition, a charge that previously was leveled against Islamic terrorists and Puerto Rican nationalists. Rhodes and others have pleaded not guilty to all of the charges. Now, according to their attorneys, they're going to put forth, a well, a pretty unique and rather novel agreement that they were armed at the Capitol that day because they believed that they were following legal orders from President Trump himself. Lisa Farah Griffin, former Trump White House Communications, is here, along with Nick Ackerman, former assistant U.S. attorney for, for the SDNY. I'm going to shorten that for you. And also Scott Jennings, former special assistant to President George W. Bush. They're all here right now. Look, I'm going to do a little bit of a voir dire for you for a second, because I've seen the voir dire form. And you're from Kentucky, the voir dire form. However you want to pronounce those words, voir dire, voir dire, whatever. Either way, I, either, I have no idea what you're Either way, about. either way, we're talking about the questions you want to ask a juror to figure out, can they be impartial? And I just want to put up for the screen for a moment. Here are some of the questions that they were asked already, trying to figure out how much they knew about something. Let's put that screen up for everyone. One of them is whether you'd voted in 2020. One was how exposed you had been to those videos for January 6th. Um, Did you tune in to the January 6th news coverage, including the day it actually happened? And also, have you been exposed to the hearings? Essentially trying to get at how much do you know? What do you think about this particular trial? I mean, this is a very big one. It's pretty important to look at. Not a very well-tested area of the law. Um, I think this is a slam dunk for the government. Really? Yes. They've got three cooperating witnesses, which is absolutely unusual in any kind of a conspiracy case to have that many cooperators. Mm. And then on top of it, they're all corroborated by these text messages that were on Signal, uh, emails on Proton, all encrypted email um, messages, which only could come to light because these cooperators provided them to the government. I mean, as a prosecutor, if I had one cooperator and lots of corroboration, I got a good shot. Two, I've got a great shot. But three, forget it. They've got three people who are going to be able to testify here, and they're all corroborated 
by contemporaneous messages that basically show that their intent was to overthrow the government, to stop the peaceful transfer of power, to bring arms into the D.C. area, and essentially try and stop the vote count in in the Congress. Here's the one flaw, though. I mean, it's almost like dating sometimes, right? Who you are matched up on paper. Looks great, right? I mean, I'm married now, so I don't know what you're talking (laughs) about. But the idea of being matched up on paper, but then there's the monkey wrench in the plans, and that is they don't have Trump right? They don't have him to specifically say that, yes, you are following my orders, which seems to be the continuous hurdle that we see in the court of public opinion and the actual hearings at this date. Do you think that's an issue? It may be. What I'm fascinated by, though, by, is, is this tack that these defendants are taking where they're basically saying, we actually thought we were following the lawful directions right. of the former president because they thought that he was going to use the Insurrection Act. Now, the Insurrection Act exists to halt insurrections. So the kind of absurdity and how far we are through the looking glass that they were committing an insurrection on U.S. Capitol soil, thinking that they would be able to hide behind that law. It's I can't really predict where this is going to go legally, but I do think it speaks to just how co-opted some of these people were by fringe conspiracy theories that just took hold and inspired these people to organize, to be there, and to go to the lengths that they did. Is that enough, do you think? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, it, we, this is one of those things about Jane. We all saw it happen. <laughs> you know, there's no mystery it's one here. one of the questions for the, for the voir dire. I, and, and so we, we all saw it. We've all seen the videos. We've all seen, you know, the news that's, that's unfolded since. There's not a ton of mystery here. I am interested in what they have to say about their defense. It seems like a bank shot uh, to a layperson. I also think there's a lot riding on this for the DOJ. They've had some high-profile missteps on things over the last few years. They, they need a win on, on this matter, I think. Uh, Some would say democracy needs a win. Well, yeah, I mean, this, this, defense, <laughs> issues, this right? defense is total nonsense. Yeah. First of all, the Insurrection Act allows the president to get the U.S. armed forces out there. That's what President Eisenhower did in Little Rock mm. to desegregate the schools. You don't pick guys off the street or people off the street who have an opinion to put them into the armed forces under the Insurrection Act. Secondly, if you look at the emails and the text messages there, I mean, they're all contrary to this defense. Right out of the box, November 3rd, Stuart Rhodes is talking about the fact that they have no choice but to actually undertake a a civil war. And he goes on talking about a civil war. And he also says in another message, you know, we have no political or legal leg to stand on. But we've got to go out there and do what we're going to do. That's a good receipt. <laughs> we don't well, have anything, but, you know, let's try anyway, but you right? you can see what the, the cross-examination here would be devastating on, these, on him. I mean, he gets up on the stand. He's going to be just destroyed. There's no way he can put forward that defense with a straight face, nor can his lawyers. I wonder if the D.C. jury, which is where it actually is going to be, right? Mm-hmm. The idea, that's why the voir dire to me is so impactful. Because they're getting to the heart of the matter, essentially, of impartiality. And can you be impartial? Normally, you have a high-profile case. You probably have heard about it. This is arguably the most high-profile case globally. The idea of what happened, we all start with our eyes. There will be the talking point politically that because of the jurisdiction that this is in, It'll be thought to be, as you talk about a slam dunk or a bank shot, that this is politics all over again. Is that a winning argument? No, because, I mean, we know that more than 20 million people have seen the January 6th hearings. We know the day of January 6th, tens of millions of people tuned in. Americans across the board have seen it. You're not going to find somebody who's unaware of the facts that took place that day. So I think that, like, the the impartiality argument, you can still be an impartial juror and recognize history as it took place. But also I want to underscore 
This case shows why a former president toying with invoking the Insurrection Act is so dangerous. I, I, by the way, I was once sitting in the press secretary's office when a staffer came in with the draft of the Insurrection Act in June of 2020, wanting to call it up. He was toying with it for months. He talked about it. He put it out there on social media. And what does that do? It emboldens militias. It emboldens extremists. And that's part of what helped lead to January 6th. Yeah, and let me just say, this Vardir that you're looking at, there's nothing special about that. Mm-hmm. I've, I've done lots of jury trials, yeah. criminal trials, and that's pretty standard stuff. What they do is it's, a, it's much longer than you probably showed. I mean, it's, it's like 15, no, it's 15 pages. Yeah, at 15 least, pages. At least. And each juror fills it out. Both sides look at it. It gives them an ability to try and, and knock people out for cause. It gives them some idea of where these people are coming from mm-hmm. before their question. But this is very standard. There's nothing unusual about this voir dire questionnaire. In fact, he, some people who were already excused said things like in their written statements, this was the most treasonous act I've ever seen, which, of mm-hmm. course, you know, gets you struck to have that level of honesty. Although, as you're saying, there's no requirement that you be ignorant to be impartial. You, you can know about the case as long as you can be impartial. Everyone stick with us right here. We'll be right back ahead. A huge boost to a bill to prevent another January 6th attack. And Mitch McConnell's on board, the Senate's top Republican. Plus, the January 6th hearing that was planned for tomorrow has now been postponed. Does that hurt or help the committee in their credibility? I mean, are they running out of steam or time? Next. Well, there's been a major boost tonight for efforts to avoid a repeat of the legislative chaos in Congress that happened on January 6th. Violent insurrection aside, of course. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell announcing that he will support legislation, making it harder to overturn a certified presidential election. I'll proudly support the legislation, provided that nothing more than technical changes are made to its current form. Congress' process for counting their presidential electors' votes was written 135 years ago. The chaos that came to a head on January 6th of last year certainly underscored the need for an update. Well, McConnell's proud endorsement is really, well, it's noteworthy to talk about. It also improves the bill's chances of passage, as you can imagine. But it also puts him at odds with the former president of the United States, Donald Trump, and Republicans who were in the House. Where you remember, all but nine Republicans opposed a similar measure that passed just last week. Our guests are back with me now to discuss this. Scott, you know Senator McConnell very well. Uh, What does this signify to you, that he is willing to proudly support it if there's no technical or only technical changes actually made? Yeah, I think he he thinks this is right over the target in terms of the appropriate response to January 6th. There was an initial movement by Democrats to totally overhaul you know federal election laws and try to federalize the elections. They oppose that. Uh, this is a bipartisan effort. It has 11 Republican sponsors, 11 Democrat sponsors. It's been crafted in a bipartisan way throughout a series of uh, meetings over a long period of time. This is how laws get made. So this is the one that can pass, by the way. The one that passed the House, I don't think, can pass the Congress. So when they come back after the election for the lame duck, I think it would behoove the House to accept the Senate's bill. This is the right thing to do. It will prevent another January 6th. And and let's not forget, it would also have prevented 2000, 2004, and 2016 when Democrats used it 
uh, to try to challenge uh, Bush and Trump's elections as well. So this really does put us on a path, I think, to an upgrade that would uh, uh, take away any ambiguity about how to monkey with the process. Let's be clear what we're talking about here, right? This is about trying to change the way that it's certified, that ceremonial process that happens on January 6th, which, mm-hmm. of course, Vice President Mike Pence said he wasn't going to toy with and tinker with. The Senate bill has this idea of its two components, the threshold, of course, and then what it requires to actually raise an objection. You have the one-fifth is the big threshold to think about here, and about that list of electors. So, and the point you're making here, of course, is in the House, um, a little bit different, and the threshold's different, and what the criteria is to actually achieve it. When you look at this, I mean, is this a sign that there is an acceptance in the Republican Party in particular that, look, this wasn't about the election denial being accurate. This was about ways to use an existing laws to undermine the fair and free transition. Well, I think this is the right tact. Um, I think previous efforts uh, did not have the bipartisan support that they needed. This hits the right tone. Eliminate any ambiguity. We don't need to deal with this again. We don't need bizarre interpretations of what the vice president of the United States can do or what electors can do. This makes it crystal clear. I'm confident it will pass in the lame duck, and it's the right thing to do. The the thing on this bill, if I may, too, that is the, the real issue is right now, one congressman and one senator can join forces and throw this whole thing into chaos. And for any reason, right? right? There's not a lot of criteria as to what they yeah. need to raise or as from a problem. A stu- or for a stupid reason. Right. <laughs> I mean, right. I mean, basically. And all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so this, in the Senate bill, a fifth of the body would be required. So you couldn't get one gadfly finding one gadfly and doing something. To me, that means if there was an issue with the election, if something legitimate happened, you would have to go then get buy-in from more than just a couple of crackpots. And I, I think that's the real critical matter here. But let me ask you this politically, because... It seems to me if this happened six months ago or even a year ago, that this would have been a harder thing for Mitch McConnell to accept. But now you've got Donald Trump basically wounded in the sense that he's got this situation with the classified information in the search warrant. He's got the New York attorney general's complaint against him. He's got an investigation by the Department of Justice into him. He's got the Georgia investigation. Don't you think that, I mean, Mitch McConnell sort of takes the pulse of the Senate, his, his caucus, and hasn't that pulse, I mean, doesn't this indicate something in terms of Trump's influence in the Senate and maybe the Republican Party? It's, it's an interesting question. I actually think it has more to do with getting the cake out of the oven at the right time. You know, they, they don't ever pull things out half-baked. That's a recipe for your bill getting defeated in the Senate. The way he let this thing work was not unlike the way he let the infrastructure bill come together. He laid in the background you had bipartisan groups of negotiators. You know, both Schumer and McConnell support this, but they weren't front and center necessarily uh, hammering it out. So they let their their workhorses uh, work on it in the background. And then when it was ready to come out of the oven, they pulled it out. And now they've got plenty of buy-in to pass the bill. So I, I think timing is everything uh, in passing bills uh, uh, in the Senate. This came out at the right time. The issues you raise about Trump, I, I don't think are unimportant. I just think it has more to do with when it was ready, uh, uh, as opposed well, speak, to bringing it out too early. Speaking of, t- of Trump, and my mouth is watering, I now want cake. Thank you so much. <laughs> sorry about that. Um, speaking of timing, though, speaking of Trump, I mean, tomorrow was supposed to be the January 6th hearing, right? Where, where Last one was July 21st. The timing now they have said is they don't want to have this while Hurricane Ian is there. The optics look bad, I'm sure. Politically speaking. What do you think is behind the decision to delay it? I mean, they want the ultimate level of transparency and coverage are they losing out or missing out, or are they running out of steam in the eyes of the public to do this? 
No, I don't think so. But I, I, the committee has a certain role, which is very distinct from the Department of Justice investigation. It's, it's a messaging role. It's educating and reminding the public of what took place and then uncovering more facts for them so that they can inform their opinion around it. I think that's what the committee needs to do. So it doesn't make sense to do it on a day when everyone's going to be glued to hurricane coverage, when people in Florida and elsewhere mm-hmm. may be suffering. So I think from a messaging standpoint and the goals of the committee, it makes sense to delay it. And I'd go one step further and say, in some ways, they're probably just as happy to have the delay for a week or two Ooh. because there's other information they're going to have. They've got Ginny Thomas coming in, for The wife example. of Justice Thomas of Justice the Supreme Thomas, Court. right. And they're trying to put together that tape of Roger Stone that they got from, from Denmark. So when you take all of that together, it's kind of like the last time they had that delay that they were sort of like, wow, this is good for us because we can get our act together a lot better. And I think that's part of what's happening, although I really think it's driven by this hurricane because you can't message this in the middle of a hurricane like this. No one's going to be paying attention. Well, they got to, I guess, Janine Thomas might be the frosting in this cake analogy. There we go, everyone. Enjoy. Feast among yourselves. (laughs) Alyssa and Nick, thank you so much. Scott, stick with us. We'll get an update on Hurricane Ian. And really, the flooding could rival the so-called storm of the century that happened almost three decades ago. Tom Sater is back with the areas that could see the worst of the hurricane's fury next. Well, we're tracking Hurricane Ian this hour as Florida is bracing for what could be a -a once-in-a-century storm. Right now, sustained tropical storm force winds are being felt in the Florida Keys, with Ian approaching the state as a Category 3 hurricane. Now, over two and a half million people are being asked or being told to leave, and they're bracing for potentially life-threatening storm surge. Storm surges here. Let's talk with um, Tom Sater in the CNN Weather Center. Tom, what is the latest that's happening right now? Well, just to recap a little bit, the center of Ian is 180 miles south-southwest of Punta Gorda. It's moving at 10 miles per hour to the north-northeast. It's been moving at 10 miles per hour all day long, and it wasn't much faster than that in Cuba, which, by the way, heavy flooding there, and they're without power in Havana. Key West already experiencing some tropical storm force wind gusts, 63 miles per hour, 71. But notice, as we talked about, that eye is collapsing. It's reorganizing. It's an eye wall replacement cycle. And so the eye will expand a little bit, get organized, and collapse and get strong again. But each time it does that, the winds expand. When can you expect some tropical storm force winds? Okay, so in areas of purple is your greatest chance. At 8 p.m. this evening, already Key West, bottom of the screen. But tomorrow at 2 a.m., in a matter of hours, from Sarasota to Lake Okeechobee, and by 8 a.m., most of the uh, central areas in southwest will have tropical storm force winds. If you have uh, pool furniture outside anywhere across this area, just toss it in your pool, tie down loose objects, keep it from blowing around. Here's the eye. Here's our other problem. These are all tornado warnings, and we've seen significant damage, uprooted trees, snap trees, Pembroke Pines. We've had some aircraft overturned. And so even there, just to the northeast of Fort Myers is another one. So this is going to continue to happen when these feeder bands ride in. These tornadoes are smaller, EF1s and 2s. They spin up very quickly. It's hard to detect, but they're getting some observations and radars catching them. Tornado watch until 5 a.m. That'll be expanded throughout the day tomorrow. The track has been changing. And, you know, every time it changes, every time that center wobbles, Laura, it's better news for some and it's worse news for other. I guarantee you, every one of these communities, no one wants misery for the next community, but they want the center of that storm to be south of them. 
and hopefully it'll continue to go, at least for some. It's just unfortunate for others. Tom, tell me about the life-threatening storm surge. I mean, what, what does that mean, and what areas are the most vulnerable? It has changed significantly, Laura, in the last 24 hours. We were expecting the center to be offshore about 20 miles, 30 miles up from Tampa Bay, sitting there for 36, 48 hours, tossing that surge up into the bay and all the inlets. Take a look at the model changes. Now, every six hours, we get a track from the National Hurricane Center. This is 11 a.m. Monday. Every six hours, we have had one, and it's all been trending to the east and to the south. 75-mile shift. That means everything. When it used to be a 5- to 10-foot surge expected in the bay, now it's 4-6. to six. Where it was 4-7, to seven, now it's 8-12, to 12, and that's from Sarasota down toward Bonita Springs. But this is significant. If you were with us yesterday, this is Tampa Bay and areas. This was all bright yellow and red. But now we're not looking at much in the way of any flooding. In fact, the winds will be carrying the water out of the bay. But to the south, where they swing back around, this is Charlotte Harbor. This is areas of Peace River, which is going to flood dramatically. We've been waiting for a steering current. We've got dry air coming down, and we've got Ian moving up. Together, they're going to form and converge, and that's going to create a lift, and that's much more rain than we had yesterday. 10, 20 inches south of Tampa to Lakeland, up toward Orlando. This alone, Lar, would be devastating without the hurricane. So this is life-threatening as well. Big changes, not the best for everybody. Tom Sater, thank you. Keep us informed, please. And everyone, stay with CNN for continuing coverage of Hurricane Ian. Coming up, the controversial election strategy on the political left, promoting far-right GOP candidates in hopes of playing spoiler this November. Is it working? And what does it say about today's Democratic Party? That's next. All right, so Democrats made quite a hefty and, well, risky gamble back in this year's primaries, spending millions to boost far-right candidates to the GOP nomination with the hopes of easily defeating them this coming November. Well, now, I mean, it appears to be paying off. In Maryland and Pennsylvania, Democratic candidates for governor hold a double-digit lead over their election-denying opponents, while in Illinois, incumbent Democratic Governor J.B. Pritzker also heavily favored to win. Joining me now, Harry Enten, CNN senior data reporter, and Paul Begala, Democratic strategist, and Scott Jennings is back with us as well. Talk to me about this gamble. I mean, Paul, you've been pretty critical about this idea of funding these sort of um, far-right extremist candidates with the hopes of being able to win later down the road. Why a problem to you? Well, first, it has worked in the past, and I was for it in the past. My, one of my heroes, Harry Reid, did that in 2010. He helped Sharon Angle, who he thought was pretty extreme. He got reelected, most comfortable reelection he ever had. So I'm not per se against it. I'm against it now. Mm. This is not 2010 or 2012 when Democrats did it and succeeded. We have uh, the president, uh, our nation's leader, but my party's leader, saying that the MAGA extremists are semi-fascist. I think he's right. If that's true, then you can't undermine that argument by backing some MAGA extremists in some states. It it breeds cynicism. By the way, the MAGA extremists and Mr. Trump are doing the job for us. They're nominating plenty of knuckleheads without Democrats messing around in this. I just think it's playing with fire, and I I don't don't like it. I don't think they need to do it. Who's getting burned? Well, I I agree with... Uh, Paul, I I think that it's cynical. It's hypocritical. I think it makes Biden look weak. I mean, if he's the head of the Democratic Party and he's telling us on the one hand how dangerous these folks are, on the other hand, his committees, 
uh, of his party are spending $50 million plus dollars on it. I mean, it makes him look weak. They, they don't listen to him. Like, they don't take him seriously. Or like he's just being another politician in Washington, D.C. So I think it hurts him. Some of these people uh, are out of their races at this point. I mean, tactically, you know, it looks like it's going to pay off in a few races. I don't know if it's going to pay off everywhere. But I think Biden's, if he runs for re-election, his core argument, he made it in the Big Red speech the other night, you know, these people are dangerous, ultra-maga, fascist, dividing the country, dangerous. And yet, his party is spending money on the very people that he says are literally destroying America. What, what does that make him? What does that make his argument look like in 2024? Well, I'll tell you what. One, I'll tell you what the DCCC chairman um, Sean Maloney had to say on NBC's Meet the Press to explain in part why the why they're doing it. Listen. Absolutely not. Uh, did we put party over country? My job is to is to win elections for the Democrats, and I take that seriously because the moral imperative is keeping the gavel out of the hands of Kevin McCarthy, who would have overturned the results of the election. I mean, this is happening not only, obviously, in the governor's races and also in congressional, congressional races as well. I mean, this is happening in places like New Hampshire, all around, very key states that have a big deal in the 2024 and going forward. What are you hearing? Yeah, I mean, New Hampshire, right? Uh, Don Baldick, who I don't know where exactly he stands on the 2020 election. At this point, he was an election denier. Then he claimed he wasn't. Now, I think he's sort of kind of come back to it. Uh, you look at the polling there, you know, University of New Hampshire had a poll that came out. Maggie Hassan, the uh, Democratic incumbent there with a clear lead. It's not double digits, but it's close there. It's an eight-point lead, as you see on that screen right there. Uh, Chuck Morse, who was backed by Chris Sununu, the incumbent Republican governor of that state, would have vastly preferred, in fact, did endorse Chuck Morse. But now Don Baldick is the nominee. He's trailing in that race. And I guess the argument that would be made if you're a Democrat is, look, that's one additional seat that's not on the table. This is a tight race for control, not just of the House, but of the Senate as well. And as Sean Patrick Maloney said, look, my job is to elect Democrats. That's the job that Democrats want. They want to ensure they have a Chuck Schumer as majority leader. They want whoever would be the Speaker of the House if it's not Nancy Pelosi. That's the job. So, I mean, is this the idea here, the end justifies the means? And you talk about, you you supported it before. The arguments I often hear people say before this has been, Democrats, they don't play the right game. They've got the Republicans who are more cohesive. They're playing dirty, they think the Republicans are, and they talk about that. And why are the Democrats so concerned with the moral high ground? This is, do you think it's seeding that in an effective way? Well, I just, I think there's political problems with it more than moral problems. But the moral problem is some of them might win. Some of them probably will win. And that's playing with fire. It's not the same as the very nice lady in Delaware, Christine O'Donnell, who had to deny that she was a witch when she ran in 2010 and Chris Coons, the Democrat, beat her when Biden became vice president. Who among us hasn't had to deny that 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 every now and then? She wasn't a threat to the Constitution the way some of these uh, extreme mega People are. I love Sean. I, the office next to him in the White House. I love him. Um, but I think I think all of us are giving the Democrats too much credit mm. for success here. The truth is, you try to monkey around the other side's primary, you're probably going to mess it up or probably not have very much effect. Republicans are perfectly capable of picking crazy people without my help. But you know, and they're doing it all across the country. I actually think it was determinative in New Hampshire uh, because the last. The, oh yeah, I think the last minute investment that the Schumer Super PAC made there. I mean, they spent like $5 million uh, to get Baldick over the line. Uh, Morse had some uh, institutional support in the state. I think he was tracking ahead. I, I really do think it was determinative. Yeah, it, was a, it was a race that was decided by just a percentage mm. point. I, I just got to add, though, when I hear witches, I think of Harry and Wizards. So that, that's, <laughs> that's right. He looked right in my eye and said witches. I don't know what to say. Maybe it was Angelica Houston throwback in some point in time. The show was called The Witches. Roald Dahl. 
Sure. All right, I'm good. You, thank you. Yeah. I almost had a blank stare over here, but either way, thinking about... Too young. Oh, are we? Uh, oh, uh, well, the witch might come out now on that comment. We'll talk about that next about the Harry Enten, Paul Begala, Scott Jennings. I promise you, it's not quite October. No witches will come out anytime soon. Thanks for watching. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.